Welcome to episode 21 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's fastest growing open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and with me tonight from somewhere beyond Thunderdome, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. What is it like living in a dystopian future, Theo? <laughs> Cost range, we're all um, just trying to work out if we should get our boats out at the moment. Um, the oh backyards are filling very quickly. From a land where it's too bright to use light meters outdoors, Mr. Anthony Rue, is it summer down there yet? It is spring break week, so I am here. You know, I could be at Daytona, I could be at Fort Lauderdale. I'm here. Oh, we, we love that. <laughs> Finally, everyone's favorite enabler, Mr. Paul Reibel. How is it that you always find stuff that all of us want to buy, Paul? Well, you know, it's just, uh, I, I, personally, I'm, I'm getting ready to ship a care package of neutral density filters down to Anthony. Uh, <laughs> he's got all the light down there. All right, looks like we have a bunch of people in the waiting room. I'm going to start letting them in one by one. I see a couple familiar faces. I see a few names that I do not recognize. So we'll quickly go through everybody that's here and have everybody or give everybody a chance to say hello. Uh, returning, I see John Gilchrist. Hey, John, how you doing? Hey, not too bad. I am uh, in South Bend, Indiana, so about an hour east of Mike right now. Yeah, but a different time zone. Yep. Uh, we have Mark Faulkner back. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's uh, lovely uh, rainy weather this evening. Yeah, I think everybody, it's raining. Uh, and on to some new faces. Uh, David Ortega, welcome to the show, David. You want to say hello? Hello. How you doing? Yeah, I'm driving home right now, so I won't be able Ooh. to show. We've had uh, people join in the middle of the night with a bout of insomnia, but I think you're our first uh, mobile joiner in a car. So uh, uh, please don't crash. I do not want to curse the show. <laughs> no, well, I'm at the gas station paying five dollars for gas right now. Okay, oh. all right, that's not, that's not too bad. <laughs> I see James Allen. James, welcome to the show. Do you want to say hello? All right. Yeah, I'm from Coser, West Virginia. Coser, West Virginia. Have you been listening to the show for a while? Yeah, uh, I found it a couple weeks ago. Awesome. Uh, I see somebody with a name N-A-F-I-S. I don't recognize that at all. It's Nafis. Nafis, how you doing? Welcome to good, the show. Good. How are you? Thank you. All right. Where are you from, Nefis? I am in Massachusetts. I don't know if anyone here is aware of the geography of it. I'm like right in the middle. It's called Western Mass, but it's actually not. It's more to the middle of Massachusetts, I guess. Uh, we had an exciting last two weeks. A lot of things have gone on. Um, I know that several of us have uh, some bouts of show and tell that maybe we could kick off the show with some some uh, pickups. Normally we do that at the end, but um, why don't we uh, start with some of the most exciting pickups that each of us have had? I'll start off. I think um, the one I've got most excited about recently is um, my brand new Plowball Makina 2S, I think it's called. Um, a six and a half centimeter by nine centimeter shoot, shooter uh, using sheet film. And um, I've actually got a 120 back on the way from for it now. Wow, that's a pretty camera. That is such a beautiful camera. You, you've actually been using one, haven't you, Anthony? I have. I've had one on an extended loan from a friend for the last three years. And I've shot both uh, sheet film through it and, uh, and the rollback. And I'm always, it's one of those cameras that, you know, the, the, the Comir and a Stigmat lens, some people don't think that it has such a great reputation, but I am always pleased when i shoot with it it just has such a distinctive look you know it's like it, a lot of the times with these cameras i couldn't tell you one camera from the next of what was shot and with the plow bell uh with that lens I, you, you could always tell that 
what that camera was kind of fussy but a lot of fun to shoot yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to trying this out for, for the people listening this is uh, it's a 1936 um, model of a Makina. It's not the the six seven that um, seems to be very popular and very very pricey these days. Um, so it's got the the really great silver finish to it. Uh, it is a range finder, um, though it, you can use like a sports finder on it. And uh, and uh, I'm. I'm think i've seen somewhere you can even get um ground glass for it yes i have i've got ground glass with mine some people don't realize that it's an interchangeable lens camera too you can unscrew that lens and replace it with different focal lengths that's that's correct i um i did pull it off and have a look at it and um yeah it's quite an interesting design on how it screws in and i think a, a half of it comes out and not the whole lens it's, it's a front and back element type thing uh the first time you extend it did you extend it to the correct length because you have to extend it differently <laughs> depending on which lens is that right? Yeah, uh, through our chats, you know I didn't. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a bit unfair, Mike. <laughs> but no, I didn't. Um, it is. It is. Um, you're absolutely correct. You have to extend it the right way, otherwise your um, your distance meter is totally off. That's cool. All right, let's move on. Uh, Theo showed us his beautiful Plava Makina. Um, who wants to go next? Anthony, go ahead. I picked up a beautiful little uh, Olympus XA4. Um, the wide angle macro version of the uh, Olympus XA. And I'm a person who has a checkered past with the XAs when they were brand new. Uh, I think I had three replaced under warranty because I just kept on breaking them as I travel with them. And so for years, I swore them off. I, I switched over to the, the Minox 35s, the GTEs, and uh, swore I'd never get another XA. And then I had a chance to pick up the uh, version one with the rangefinder. And this one just kind of fell into my lap. It was one of those crazy eBay auctions where uh, the seller had been unhappy with the, the bids he'd had on his auction and he pulled them and he pulled the auction and he put it back up, but didn't reset everything. So it expired like 15 minutes after he posted it and nobody had a chance to bid on it, but me. So I was able to get it for a nice price. Wait a minute. The auction had gone higher than you paid for it. The oh, seller double. canceled it, relisted it, and you got it cheaper? Yes. Wow. It had, it had gone up like into the 200s and was climbing. And with an hour to go, he pulled the auction and relisted it with a, a buy it now of like 275, but an opening auction wow. bid of, of 120 or 125. And uh, it was, but he didn't reset the time that the auction ended. So like, uh, the auction ended like 15 minutes after he relisted it. Jeez. And so Jeez. I jumped in. You've had some weird eBay stories with you bought a Minolta 7 yeah. where the guy had nine, free shipping nine. and Minolta 9. Yes, that was a weird one. But this one was also very weird in that I'd been following it and, and I saw that it had gone higher than I was willing to bid on it. And uh, I thought I just would check in to see how high it went. So I figured it would go for around $300, which is what the XA4s normally sell for. And, uh, there it was for the opening bid of 125 with nobody else bidding. See, I've had the opposite problem. I've had instances where I put a camera on my watch list uh, and just forgot to bid on it, and it closed with zero bidders. So yep. it got relisted for the same price, and then I bid on it, and it sold for higher than the first one did. So that seems to be my luck. The most important camera that I got this week is the is King Regular RM. Ooh, the Regular RM. Please tell us about it. Oh, I would if I knew anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it's, it's, it's shocking how little information there is about the uh, 
the King uh, camera works of uh, it's just, it's on uh, uh, it's just on the east side of, of, of Strasbourg, you know, across the border from France uh, in the German side. And, uh, you know, it's a company that manufactured apparently post-war cameras um, yeah. and sort of disappeared after the 1960s. But this is one heavy little camera. It's actually extremely well made. It's got a uh, it's got a, a coated Steinhall lens, and it's yeah. got a, a working light meter. And this was another one that was a tip from Mike. He's you know Mike sent me a link and said yeah you might want to check this out. And it went for the opening bid of twenty dollars. Twenty bucks. Um, twenty wow. bucks. Twenty bucks. So I got a nice little nineteen fifties German rangefinder uh, for twenty dollars. And I'm I just I've loaded it up with some double X and didn't quite get a chance to get it developed before the show. Uh, but the shutter seems fine and the light meter works perfectly. It's calibrated to my light meter that I have and, uh, probably the, the best $20 camera I've picked up in a long time. I have the exact same model. That's the RM, but they made an interchangeable lens version as well, which is very similar to that one. And I have both the fixed and interchangeable lenses. And the thing that strikes me about those, not only their heft, um, but that I, I like that they're they're good looking German cameras that don't look exactly like any other camera that was made. I mean, I'm not saying it looks completely bizarre, but it has its own look and it just it has a feel to it. It's very comfortable in the hands. It's it's heavy, it's solid. Uh the viewfinder on mine works really, really well. My light meter works just like yours does. I mean, I don't know if we're just incredibly lucky, but I've been really impressed with that camera. Uh and I do have a review coming for it, which I'll have later this year. Because um, currently, if you Google the King Regulus, pretty much the, the best site for anything about that brand is uh, Cision de Hoog's CJ's Classic Cameras uh, has, has a pretty good write-up on those, too. So I'll try to best him when I uh, have an opportunity to do some research on the brand. Yeah, they're actually quite a well-made camera. I mean, I'm holding yeah. a, um IPA uh, version here, and they're actually quite a bit of heft like you said anthony they're quite a bit of heft this one's got an extinction extinction meter so technically the meter works as well but um i think it actually be very hard to, uh, to find an extinction meter that doesn't work the regular rm it seems to have taken its styling cues from a 1950s shortwave radio you know it just yeah. has that it has that look of like 1960s or 50s german like electronics where it has these like a vertical lines of it like embossed black enamel and the the king logo that that looks like a like a like a regal crest uh and then there's like really tightly done top plate that's like a, a milled stainless uh top plate yeah it looks like it looks like a, you know it could easily have been uh a matching camera that went with somebody's like home stereo console does anybody else have any kings well that's that, that's interesting because i've got the uh i've got the 1d here um, which to me, this is, it's kind of light. It looks very well made. I mean, it's like, yeah, this is German engineering and a camera, like every, the fit and finish and everything is perfect, but it, it reminds me a lot more of like an Agfa something or other than, yeah. than, uh, than anything else. It's, you know, I don't even hear that, but it feels like it's like lightweight aluminum or something but it's you know it's well made it's you know everything fit and finish is beautiful on it yeah i think i've got a regular regular l yeah that's very similar to what you've got john does it have interchangeable lenses on yours mark no it's it's a viewfinder one so it does not have okay. interchangeable lenses it's the same sort of lightweight but it actually feels like a reasonable camera surprisingly yeah, yeah that's that's kind of how this one is feels real light but but very well made the yeah. rm is built like a, a mercedes uh, 240d 
you know it, it it's like one of those like european taxis that's still running after 40 years with 300,000 miles years we'll find out soon though when your pictures come out how it turned out but it sounds like it's working good what amazes me with wine is um and i'm not sure how you guys have it is is the top plate looks like it's in perfect condition there's no marks on it no it seems to have held up really well um some cameras of that era uh, from the, the unknown makers tend to have you know a bit of rust coming through or or you know pitting or something but th- this looks really really good yeah i feel like the alloy they used is is good quality alloy so it tends to resist the pitting and scratching that you normally see in some of the ones like that if you've ever seen an agfa ambi select um for some yeah. bizarre reason the door always oxidizes the, the rest of the camera doesn't but the you can bear you'll rarely ever find an ambi select where the door isn't all messed up or just ugly in some way but it, it has no effect of course on the camera the Acarel is another one that does that too. Just for some reason, there's just certain alloys, certain finishes that were used back then that just did not hold up well. So, does anybody know anything about the history of King? I mean, did it like come out of like another camera with engineers starting up their own company, or was it a you know because it you know it appears to have you know began they, it appears that they began making cameras post war sometime in the 1949-50 era. And then they sort of peter out, you know, towards the end of the 60s, although Theo had said that um, that they OEM'd the uh, Voigtlander uh, Vito 110. The Vito 110, yeah. um, which would have been 70s? Yeah, that sounds about right. That's when the 110s. Um, but they actually went out. Um, I did see that King went out of um, business in the early 80s. So, yes, the 110 would have been around oh. the late 70s, I imagine. So, but they did a lot of OEM work for, uh, I think it's Review in Germany and Dixon's in um, the UK, where they had a lot of rebranded, similar to what, you know, some of the Soviet manufacturers used to do as well. Yeah, I mean, you got to remember, I mean, I'm no historian on German history, but their economy was wiped out after World War One. The Nazis came to rise power. They started World War Two. Then their economy was wiped out again. You know, and by the early 50s, you know, it only had been, what, six, seven years since the war ended. And there were a lot of people that were still looking, you know, to establish their 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 businesses. And I, I think that there were just a lot of camera companies that just kind of came up out of nowhere. And there was a lot of talent, too. So I, I don't have a lot of history on King uh, or know too much about who started it. But the fact that they made such decent cameras... And they weren't like cheap, you know, toy cameras strongly suggest that they were able to to call some talent, you know, maybe from Stuttgart. They could have had ex-Kodak employees working there. Who knows? But I, I have to believe that they had somebody who knew what they were doing working there. Well, hopefully somebody who perhaps follows us or listens to the podcast can jump onto the uh, Facebook group and fill in a little bit more history. You know? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's ask one of the, the people who've never joined before, um, James or Nef- Nefis. Um, you guys got anything new? No, it, you guys put me to shame, I guess. I thought I had a gas problem. <laughs> I haven't gotten anything in the last two weeks. Well, it's okay. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. No, I have not gotten anything. What's your favorite camera you've picked up in the last five months? Favorite camera? I did pick up a, what do you call that? Uh, a wide lux. Um, but it's... Uh, oh, you got John excited. <laughs> everybody goes ooh at once uh, yeah I actually got the 120 version so the bigger one 
um, but it's I, I'm finding issues with the shutter, so we'll have to see. I might have to take it apart and put some lubrication in there. Do you, do you take um, your, your cameras apart yourself? Yeah, putting it back together. That's another. <laughs> <laughs> I can do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Taking it apart is fun. I like this guy. He t- he repairs his own cameras and uh, he says, "Oh, I can't keep up with you guys." And and the one camera he pops up is a wide lux. Yeah, <laughs> that's a nice camera. So, have you ever shot one before? No, I I think uh, the only things I've shot is uh, the six seventeen, um, but yeah. it was like one of those uh, Chinese knockoff ones. I shot okay. with a Fuji, and I was like, I need one, and then I picked up the Chinese one, and I was like, this is like you know shit compared to the Fuji. So I haven't shot with it that much. The rangefinder on the Fuji is just so much better. Or like not the rangefinder, but the calibration on it. So if you yeah. just measure with the laser pointer or something, it's been very accurate. Not as accurate as on the Chinese ones. I mean, they're great cameras if you put on the ground glass. But so you just said something that that I'm curious about because I've heard of this before. Calibrating a rangefinder with a laser pointer is that what you were talking about? Oh, I mean, no, not the calibration. But I'm saying uh, what I was saying was the markings on the helicoid is not as accurate as. It was with the Fuji. So I have like one of those, um, you know, the contractors use the laser distance yeah, measuring device. Yeah, so that's Range what point. I normally use. So with the Fuji, it was very accurate, right? So whatever you get on the laser pointer, you just put it on, dial it in the helicoid and it's you get everything sharp. But with the Chinese helicoids, I think it, like, you know, the calibrations were off or something, and but it just wasn't as quick. Am I understanding what you're saying correctly, though? The way I thought I read it before is you can actually use a laser pointer through the eyepiece of the camera, and it splits through the bean splitter and comes out the front of the camera, and you, you try to see if, if the, the, the points converge. Am I completely whacked out there? No, I, that how that... Mike, I think what he has is a, a laser rangefinder. Right. Oh, okay, okay. You know, like the golfers use. and. Uh... Right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because those things, uh, that's a, what a great idea, though. I mean, I hadn't even thought about that, but for any camera, because I'm a, I'm a horrible guesser. I mean, that's I've sold so many Roly 35s because I could never get them. I could never get them focused. I just can't think in terms of, of distance. But that'd be what a terrific idea. I mean, just to pick up a little range laser rangefinder and uh, there was somebody and God, I cannot remember who it was. I'm gonna have to do some research and I'll respond later after the show's done. But there was one company that made a focusing aid that actually worked that same way, and it shot beams of light out the front of the camera. It wasn't even meant for calibrating. It was just a focus aid where you would turn the focus on the lens, and when the lights lined up, you would have it correctly mm-hmm. in focus for – it allowed you to focus in the complete darkness. And Isn't I, that Leica? I, I thought Leica did something like that. It's very possible because they made every accessory you could possibly make. Or I'd had a camera, Mike, that uh... – it was really made for for medical work, but it was it had two it had the, exactly what you're describing. You okay. could set it for different yeah. reproduction ratios, okay. and uh, you would just move yourself in and back until the two red dots lined up. This is Mike. After the show was recorded, I did some research, and the thing I was thinking of was called the Grayflex Range Light. It was an accessory that worked with the rangefinder on Grayflex press cameras that used a small light bulb that, when used in total darkness, would project two beams of light out of the front of the camera. The photographer would focus the camera, and that would move the beams of light so that when they converged, the image was properly in focus. 
It used a light bulb and not a laser, but I imagine it could be adapted to work with a laser too. Oh yeah, that was kind of a weird wormhole there. I was just trying to think of, but it popped in my head. Sorry, Anthony, go ahead. I use one of the contractor laser uh, finders to uh, shoot with my Procaro at concerts at night. You know, although I, I kind of worry that when the you know somebody's going to see the red dot on the bass player and. <laughs> yeah, not a good idea. Take me out, yeah. of, you know. <laughs> Two of them lining up, you know, they're converging right on his forehead. But, but like, like Paul said, it works really great for shooting with a uh, with uh, you know a viewfinder camera in, in darkness. Uh, so, like I said, I, I load up the Procuro with with uh, like Kodak thirty two hundred, and then just sort of get readings along the stage, and then use that to set the camera. And it it works great. I mean, I get like absolutely dead sharp photos with with a 1950s rangefinder or viewfinder folder uh, at a concert. My my recommendation, though, is, Anthony, don't use it at any political events. No, 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 no. (laughs) You can actually find like camera top rangefinders, the smaller ones. I don't know if if any of you have used those. Um, I guess they used to make it back in the day. I've got a drawer full of them and they're great, except for an extremely low light you know, conditions. Um, yeah. And sometimes the calibration is way off and you can't recalibrate them. Most of those are, you can reset them. And most of them have, uh, you know, vertical and horizontal alignment uh, yeah. pretty easily accessible. I've got the wattometer. That, that's probably <laughs> the most well-known one. So if anybody wants to look it up, the wattometer is one that's very well known and it, it you can get both, uh, you know, imperial measurements and in, uh, metric measurements as well. So whatever sort of tickles your fancy or whatever lens you're pairing it up with, um, uh, it, it's perfect. And they're, they're, they're fantastic. They fit in your pocket. You, you stick them on top of your camera and, and you've effectively got a rangefinder. Yeah, the wattometers are really good too. Have any of you guys ever used something called the Kodak Field Rangefinder? They made it for the tourist and probably one or two other cameras, it sticks straight up. So it actually sticks perpendicular to the top plate of the camera. If you've ever seen one of these, I know I have one here. I just don't know where it is. Uh, but it has the tiniest. I'm talking shockingly small windows on it. It's so small that the first time I tried to use one, I just assumed it was broken. Like, I was like, I'm yes. not even seeing anything. You've, so you've tried one, Mark? Yeah, I've got one and it had the same feeling where I like tried it. I was like, what the heck is wrong with this thing? I can't yeah. get a usable. Yeah, yeah. It, but that's just how they are. That's actually how they were intended. It is the tiniest. And I am not exaggerating. Like, think of uh, the first generation Retina viewfinder, but like a quarter of the size of that. That's how tiny the window is when you look through. And, and once you see the image, like you got to get your eye in the right spot. Once you see the images converge, it works fine. But man, that's the, the smallest, like poorly. I, I don't know what the heck they were thinking. Or can we come back to your Tower 24 that you held up? So Tower 24, and this is a replacement. So I had a, an Asahi Flex that I bought that had issues with the curtains. I sent it down to Pro Camera in Charlottesville, which is actually my hometown. And the, the service lost it. It, they delivered it to the wrong address or something, never showed up at the camera store. Nobody ever found it. Thankfully, I had purchased it through stamps.com and they immediately paid me back for the insurance value. And this is the replacement. And this one actually works perfectly. So it's, I think it's actually a more interesting camera because it's the tower version of it. But I'm really sad that there is an Asahi Flex floating around somewhere. And hopefully somebody found it and is actually going to use it. Anthony, you have the tower version too, right? I do. I love that camera. That lens is stunning. Um, yeah. You know, you, you shoot it wide open and it looks like 1920s cinema, you know, just the, the way that it handles the out of focus area. 
uh, and the and the contrast that it gets, it's it, it's a, a fantastic portrait lens. Well, and the two four is a heliar too, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to finishing this ro- finishing this roll up and uh, and seeing what the, what develops out of it. I'm just running my my standard uh, Delta 100 through it right now. That's kind of my go-to film to test things. And this one just worked without any help, like the shutter works at all the speeds. It was it was perfect out of the box wow. for me, basically. So it's Very actually cool. a better deal because it was it was slightly cheaper than the other one, and it works perfectly. So I know the way I made it out ahead, it just lost the other one. Well, that's cool. Glad to hear that. All right, who else? Who else has some? Oh, we well, you know since we talked about the White Lux, I got one I want to share. Now this is just a loner. Uh, from Kurt Ingham, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do the 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 reveal. Do, do, do. Ooh. Ooh. So so we're gonna do an unboxing. For those of you listening, <laughs> you don't get you don't get the privilege of seeing the beautiful unboxing of a Noblex. I mean, it's not new, but um. So I got this is the 35 millimeter. Uh, we could see here. So this will be my swing lens panoramic. This is the the Noblex 135s panorama i have not even taken out of the box yet because i also didn't mention this but um i broke my foot about two weekends ago so my camera uh shooting time has has been difficult in fact as i record this show i'm in the basement where i usually am this is the first time i've come down in the basement in about like 10 days so i haven't had access to all my cameras but uh thanks kurt as always he's been my benefactor for a great number of cool cameras i am going to keep that thing in the box until the moment i shoot it it's going to go back in the box and it's going to go on the post right back to him because i don't even know what the ebay prices on those things are but uh they're they're not cheap that's a really nice camera like yeah you know we talked about noblex uh before but you know um noblex that comes from john noble who he and his dad owned uh camera verkstatten or kw who made the Practina, the Practiflex, you know, so they, they have a long history in, in German camera making that had, took an unfortunate turn uh, and wound them both up in gulags. But uh, I, I won't repeat that story because I've already talked about it before, but I'm looking forward to trying that one out. Okay. Um, if we're still going with, what, new purchases, I've got one right here, which is a Nika. Oops, I'll turn it upside down for people. Oh, it's uh, Australian. Nika 3S. Oh, okay. No, no, it's not the Snyder. Still looking for those. <laughs> I think there's only two in existence and they're going for like 13,000 euros. So I might <laughs> avoid that one. But this is uh, interesting enough. Actually, that's a good link because the Snyder was actually based on the Nika 5. Right. So it's, it's actually a replica of that. So, But no, this is the Nika 3S. I will actually get a 5 one day just so I can actually um, say I've got something like the Australian Leica. But um, I bought this from our favorite enabler as we huh. call him paul <laughs> um and we i think we've mentioned it in the last couple of shows there's a package that's been making its way from uh, ohio across to sydney uh, very very slowly and i think it's taken like about six weeks but uh but we we got it got here and it's a great condition look really looking forward i've stuck a canon uh 50 millimeter 1.8 ltm on there at the moment um, but uh, the Nikas seem to have a fairly good reputation uh, in terms of quality and, and shooting as one of the, the nicer um, Japanese uh, Leica copies. Was that the Valentine's Day camera your wife encouraged you to buy? Yes, that is. That's the, yes. that's the Valentine's Day camera. So uh, so for anybody who doesn't listen to every one of our episodes, the short of it is his wife said, why don't you buy yourself a camera from your friend? So he was like, okay. And he wound up with a Nika. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot better than flowers. Yeah. 
Mark, you have a NECA. Which one do you have? Yeah, I've got two 3Ss, uh, one that works and one that doesn't. But they, yeah, they're beautifully built. Uh, I mean, I, I typically, I love the Canon rangefinders. To me, this feels even more solid than, than most of the Canons. So, uh, yeah, I think you're going to really enjoy shooting that one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, shooting, I'm still shooting with the VT Deluxe, the Canon at the moment. Uh, but um, my LTM sequence will, will come into the NICA very soon. Yeah, my only NICA is, I don't even have a NICA branded camera, but I have the Tower 45, which is the Sears Roebuck uh, version of, I honestly can't remember which one it is, but it's got the lever wind and the Leica M3 style door in the back, mm. which I, th- I thought I would love. But I gotta be honest with you, it it doesn't measurably improve the experience of of shooting it. Uh, a lot of people aren't fans of bottom loaders, but it's it's other than the the learning curve the first couple times you do it. Um, I don't know that having the door makes it that much easier to load, but it's still cool to have it because uh, you know they are fantastic cameras. I think mine might actually be a tower as well. I, I don't think it's actually the NICA branded one. Uh, yeah. Not not down in the main room right now because my 3D printer is making too much noise. They seem to have OEM'd uh, a lot of um, manufacturing uh, for other brands because they, they do. I mean, as I mentioned, the, the Snyder was actually a NICA as well. I think um, I think there's another one that's floating around somewhere that was a, actually originally a NICA and uh, has a different brand on it. Uh, well, NICA definitely had a strong relationship with Sears Roebuck. I mean, they started selling tower cameras, I think, as early as 52, maybe 53. And they did that pretty much up until the very end of NICA when they were purchased by Yashima or Yashika. So, you know, there was quite a length of time in the 50s where you would go to Sears. In uh, for those of you not in the United States, Sears was a huge you know, department store retailer. Um, where you could go and buy Sears sold everything, common household goods. In the early part of the 20th century, you could even buy a house from Sears. They would they would sell prefabricated houses to people. But um, their tower cameras, they sold rebranded Mimias. Um, you know, just the the Asahi Flex. You know, they they sold a ton of different companies. But they must have had some strong relationship with Nika though, because I don't even think you could buy a NICA branded camera in the United States, the only way to get them was the tower. And, you know, for maybe, I don't know this, I'm just guessing, but perhaps the average 1950s American who maybe didn't uh, have a lot of faith in Japanese quality might have felt better seeing an American name on it or something like that. So who knows, maybe that's the story behind the Snyder too. Um, you, you mentioned Yashika bought them out. Um, I'm going to test your history here, Mike. Okay. Uh, when Yashigas actually did have a LTM rangefinder, I believe at some point, was that based on the Nika or was that in parallel before they bought them out? There were two of them, the Yashika YE and the YF. The YE was just a straight up rebadged um, Nika. Uh, it looks just like a, a like a thread mount. Uh, and the other one is the Yashika YF, which ironically has the word Yashika on the top plate, but it also says Nika on the front plate. So it has both Nika and Yashika on there. But that's more like, I think it's called the 5L. Um, again, I, I don't have it in front of me because Nika is kind of like similar to Canon in that they made a crap load of variants that all have similar names and they don't go in order. So, But yes, there are two Leica thread mount Yashika cameras and they were both made for Yashika by Nika. And that's that's quite interesting. I always wondered about that link um, 
whether Yashika had actually gone in the Alturm room themselves or it was when they took over Nika, but it sounds like they did wait until they took over a company that was already right. experienced in it. Well, the the biggest story, um, I'd spoken to Paul Sock, uh, who is a guy that I, is fascinating. He runs YashikaTLR.com. He's incredibly detailed. His website is fantastic. Even if you have no interest in Yashika TLRs, I still recommend checking out his site just for the vast amount of knowledge he has uh, about Yashika. But I had spoken to him, and um, the short version of the story is Yashima originally. And they became Yashika later. But Yashima was well aware that producing only TLRs would only get them so far. You know, by the mid-50s, I think a lot of the Japanese cameras knew that the writing was on the wall. You know, people were moving to smaller cameras. 35mm was getting bigger. Uh, SLRs were the, the style of camera for the future. You know, we've had Robert on talking about Nikon, and they knew even uh, after releasing the S2, they are working on the SP. They knew we have to start working on an SLR. But um, Yashima wanted to get into the world of 35mm, specifically SLRs, but they only knew how to make TLRs. You know, they only had leaf shutters on them. Yashima had no experience with focal plane shutters. They had no experience with 35 millimeter cameras. Well, you have Nika, who, you know, was moderately successful in the 50s, but ran into financial problems. And I guess the story goes is that they were going out of business. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. And Yashima, you know, kind of swung in at the last moment and bought what was left of the company for the express purpose of helping them use their focal plane technology for Yashika to build its own SLR. So they eventually released what was called the Pentamatic in 1960, which, you know, it, it did have a lot of people think of Yashika SLRs as all having the M42 screw mount, but the Pentamatic had a unique bayonet mount that only that camera had. Um, Yashika thought, you know, hey, we're going to jump in feet first, just like all the other Japanese companies were, and uh, release a camera, but they needed Nika to do it. So I think that the, the, the result of those two Leica thread mount Yashikas were, hey, we own this company now. They already have these cameras. Why not sell a couple with our name on it? Uh, they built the Yashika 35, which a lot of people say is a context clone, but it couldn't be. It, it's not. It, it only vaguely looks like it. That's a completely unique camera with a leaf shutter still. Um, but the, the whole reason Yashika purchased Nika was so that they could use their technology, their experience, and help them build um, a 35mm SLR, which we now know uh, the Pentamatic was an okay camera, but it was not successful. Uh, and Yashika quickly realized, all right, we, we need to rethink this. And they kind of went down market with uh, which was called the J-series and went with the screw mount. Interesting little thread there. Um, I've noticed that uh, Miles Liebach has joined us today. Yeah, hey, Miles. Uh, We're hey, talking everyone. about recent purchases, mate. What's your recent purchase? Put you on the spot. Yeah, I, I got uh, a nice, let's see here if I can pull up on the camera. The uh, I think almost complete. Uh, Zeiss uh, filter set for the 40.5 thread mount. So all the contacts rangefinder lenses, or most of them, the 50s, and then some of the Nikon rangefinder lenses too. Pretty good glass. So. So those are screw-ons. They're not series filters. No, these are these are screw-ons. Okay. Yeah. Cool. What did James, James was holding something up earlier? What did, what did you just pick up? Oh, I I uh, a couple weeks ago I picked up a, a Miranda Sensor X. There you go. A pawn shop. Came with uh, five lenses, 
Whoa. Had the 35, the 1.450 millimeter. Had two 135s and a 200 millimeter with it. I got that for $95. Whoa. Keep a lookout on that 1.4 because there, there is one version of the 51.4 that's eight elements. It, that's a fantastic lens. I, I can't tell you how to identify it. I had one not long ago and, and uh, I was amazed at uh, how oh, the quality of it. Yeah, I do. It's my, it's my fifth one. I do like I do like the Mirandas. I don't think I would depend on it if I was out making something that was really important. But it's it's fun to shoot with. And this one works, James. Works uh, works okay because they do have yeah. a bit of a hit and miss uh, reputation. Yeah, uh, it was. It's only it looks new. Uh, the battery apartment was clean. The, the meter works. Everything seems to work on it pretty good. Is there a flash accessory shoe on top of the prism or no? I can't remember. On that one, I don't think there is, is there? Okay, because they, they made two versions of the Sensor X. Um, the later version is called the Sensor X C, and it added a flash accessory ch- shoe to the top. And I think they made a change something to the door. I, some, I, I'm just going off the top of my head here, but the Sensor, like, so we've talked about Miranda before. We had a whole episode on this, and a lot of people have bad memories of Miranda's later cameras because their quality control at some point started to take a nosedive. But I feel just based on my own experience, I don't have any proof of this, but the Sensor X model era is about that time where if you get an earlier one, they're more likely to stay working, just like the the Alphabet Mirandas, the A, B, C, D. Those almost always are great cameras. Now, I mean, obviously, they, they suffer the rigors of time like everything else is. So if it's clean and it's been taken care of, they're going to work fine. But the Sensor Xs, if you get the earlier one without the shoe... I believe, and again, this is just my opinion, but I believe they, they have a much better chance of working. But the later ones with the shoe permanently attached to the top, that's called the Sensor XC. Now, you could swap the prism, so I guess that's not the, the best way to tell, but most people didn't swap the prisms on those. Um, so you're, I, I would I would feel comfortable saying for someone looking to get a Sensor X, uh, you want to get one without the, the, the shoe because that should – should suggest you have an earlier model and therefore maybe more reliable, but that's just my opinion. So do you think the Sensor X2 is the, is the, the downfall, the downslide of the quality? Oh yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. Pretty much any Miranda made in the seventies, uh, the chances of it not working are much higher. They were badly managed. Um, like a lot of companies, uh, light off with the Lordomat was similar in that their distributor basically screwed them. Uh, Iris, the Japanese rangefinder Iris was, um, stuck with um calamar calamar screwed them uh lord Amat was screwed by uh photo quell and miranda's was through aic allied impacts corporation they were like the exclusive u.s distributor and you know i just think again just my opinion but i think that by the end of the 60s the the glory days of you know you make a japanese camera it's going to be great or kind of over with that's not to say that there still weren't good japanese cameras but for a while there almost everything coming out of japan was good but you know at, at some point that money train starts to slow down and i think that's what happened with a lot of those companies and and miranda you know they had to do what they had to do and they they did cost cutting quality control i don't know specifically what but you, you get a sensor x2 a senso mat uh, the last SLR they made is called the DX3. I shared this story before. I bought nine of them once. I got a lot of nine DX3s. They were all in the original box. I'm thinking one of these has got to work. Nope, none of them did. 
So um, I'm 0 for 9. And I actually already had one, so I'm 0 for 10 on DX3s. The Senso Rexes, though, I, I love the way they look. They have that kind of Dodge Ram grill on the front of the prism. Uh, you got some great lenses. Paul's exactly right. They did make an 8-element F1.4. Unlike, though, the, uh, what is it, the, the Takamars that have a 7 and an 8-element version, you can tell by looking at the infrared index mark. I don't know of a way on the Mirandas to tell the difference. I'm sure there might be a way to do it by serial numbers, probably by weight. I, I Again, I don't know, but whether it's the 7 or the 8 element, the Saligor made those lenses and they, they did a really good job. So if uh, assuming you, you're going to shoot that camera, I, I'd be shocked if you weren't happy with the images you get from it. Yeah, I have a, uh, a GT I'm really happy with. I really have a good time with that one too. Paul, no, no, no. I think that's Novak that, that has the GT. Paul, yeah, you had a no bunch of them. Yeah, Novak has a GT, and he also Novak is the guy. He knows which how to identify that eight element or fifty millimeter. Oh, does one he? Element. He's the one that I just remembered. He's the one that showed me how to identify it. I'm gonna snap my fingers. Let's see if we can get Novak to show up. No, Come it's on. work this no, time. No, it's not gonna work. <laughs> um, I think David Ortega said he's got a few cameras to show us, and I think his his microphone might be working now. Hello, he's still in the car. Yeah, I'm still in the car, but. Yeah, I did get a few contacts, family, cousins uh, recently. Because of your guys' the Facebook page, someone put up about where to find good uh, Soviet cameras. And that's when I went to Fedka and I ended up getting a, a Kia 4A. And then at my local thrift store, I ended up finding a, a contacts 3A with the, with the Sonar 1.5. And then also recently, I also like, traded in a bunch of stuff and got a an icon sp oh nice nice oh an sp very nice yeah the three a is well, the two a and three a are just two of my favorite cameras to shoot and that sonar one five is fantastic and i was also i was out shooting my uh kia 4a uh this last week the university of florida the ukrainian student association were having a series of demonstrations against the invasion and i was uh shooting shooting the various students and the, and the demonstrations with the, the Kiev, which was was kind of fun. I had one of the students come up to me, and they see my camera, and they go, oh, very patriotic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was uh, I was shooting it with, 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 with Oro UN54, and I posted some of my photos onto uh, Instagram and found out today that, that Oro, uh, the film company, has been reposting my photographs of the demonstration. So uh, it was kind of cool that, that, yeah, you know, I love the contacts, but the Kia 4A, you know, for the money is just so much bang for the buck. Yeah. Those the, the Helios lens is fantastic. And, uh, you know, I like them both. I prefer shooting the contacts, but that the, the, the 4A is also just a great camera. And I like the A, which for, for anybody not familiar, the 4A lacks the meter, whereas the 4 has it. It kind of like you'd think it'd be the other way around, but I just like the look. I feel like the ergonomics are better. Uh, plus, if you want to attach like a wide angle and use an auxiliary viewfinder, when you attach it on top of the meter of the four, it's even higher. Like it, it feels kind of ungainly if you want to use a wide angle or telephoto on the four uh, and attach a, a, an auxiliary viewfinder on top of that. One thing I think is kind of interesting is I've noticed, you know, Anthony, you mentioned this, but I've seen a lot of other people uh, want to shoot Ukrainian cameras. And I, I always see people pulling out the Kievs and great camera, you know, nothing wrong with that. But I, I want to remind people that feds were made in Ukraine as well. So I really, really like the fed twos. Um, I think for me of the screw mount Soviet cameras, 
the Fed too just kind of has like enough slightly different from the original formula that's still like comfortable to hold. It's compact. Uh, the Fed two does not have slow speeds, which actually works to its benefit because it's the slow speed governor that usually gets gummed up on those cameras and causes them to completely stop working. As much as I love the Zorky four. Uh, the slow speed governor on that can, if you don't cha do the shutter speeds correctly, you can just jam the whole works up where that's not likely to happen with the Fed too. So again, nothing wrong with shooting Kievs. I understand why people want to do it. I won't get into that. But if you want to support Ukrainian cameras, you know, let's let's have some love for the Feds too. Or you could start shooting the Salyut, you know, which we talked about. Those things never work. So never mind. Am I the only one that has spacing issues with the Kievs? Is it overlapping or, or yeah, too far? Yeah, it overlaps. Yeah. Really. Have more than one, it does it. Never had that problem. No. Oh, okay, mine tend to go wider and, and narrower, but never overlapping. I, yeah, I've seen them not consistent. You know, where you look at your negatives and the gaps vary like ever so slightly. But I don't think I've ever had one where images actually overlap. It's not all of them. It's just enough that that ruins shots. You know. Yeah. Mine does variable where there'll be some spacing that's wider than others, but I've never had mm -hmm. an overlap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've got a 4A and a 4AM, and the 4A is much better on spacing than the AM is for whatever reason. Is there a special procedure to advance it to keep it from doing that? Or is it, I don't know. Probably not. Open, pray, crop, frame, frame for a square photo. <laughs> no, honestly, I think that's just, that comes with the territory, but it shouldn't be common. Slightly variable, yes, but for them to overlap, no, that's, that's definitely not normal. You know, cameras that don't have, uh, for, for people who aren't familiar with the mechanics of a 35 millimeter, that's part of the role when you look in a film compartment, that shaft that has the teeth sticking out. That's why most cameras have that, is that's how the camera knows how much film is advanced before it stops and makes it ready for the next picture. Because on 35 millimeter, uh, to get a properly spaced 36 millimeter wide image, it's eight sprocket holes. So cameras are, are, are built to feel that shaft spin in exactly eight sprocket holes and then it stops. Because when you start the beginning of a roll of film, as it attaches to the take-up spool versus the end, the film has wound around itself enough times that each revolution of the take-up spool actually pulls more of the film per wind. But their cameras are built in a way so that it only allows you to go eight sprockets, whether you're at the beginning or the end of the film. And that's how you normally would get properly spaced photos. But Cameras like the Leningrad, uh, I recently reviewed the Corefield Paraflex. Uh, there were a few others that do not have a shaft like that. They they just count how far the drum turns. But what, what happens when, that, when you do that is your images will be spaced differently at the beginning of the roll than at the end. So that can be kind of a nightmare. I mean, it really doesn't matter anymore today with people digitizing and using flatbed scanners to scan. But... Back in the day, I have to imagine photo finishers cursed people who use cameras like that because it would throw off the machines as the spacing wasn't correct. It actually, um, it does actually affect people with um, scanners. Uh, if you use the pool scan, if they're irregularly um, spaced, some of the software like ViewScan will actually okay. struggle to, to get that placed properly and you'll, you'll, you'll get some frames that look a bit dodgy. Um, yeah. But James, that, that I mean, that's a good point. The Your Kiev, does it have the, the teeth? Is one of the teeth maybe worn down or something? And maybe it's slipping and it's not feeling like it's moving enough film through? Is that possible for it to slip? Yeah, probably. That's my guess. That would be, I don't know that it would wear down the teeth itself, but probably something inside. It's probably just not 
or it's getting caught up for some reason. It just isn't moving. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's it's not constant. It's not a constant pattern. It's, it's erratic. You could try taking it apart. It shouldn't be that hard, but I don't know if you're going to get it back together. So <laughs> give you a hand. Yeah, there you go. I would also check the backplate pressure as well, though, because sometimes if that's too loose, the film can pop off the sprockets and won't get advanced very far. I had a couple like that oh, where the go. springs underneath the backplate were, were too compressed and it was causing the film to pop off. So does everybody just, do they advance after they take, I mean, when you're going from one spot to another, do you wait till you get to that spot to advance the film or do you take a shot then advance? I advance immediately after I shoot just because I, w- I want to be sure it's the shutter is cocked. You know, so I always just advance the film automatically after I take the shot. You know, I'm with Paul on this one. It's just, it's a, a reflex now where the moment that I've hit that, that, you know, before I even take the camera away from my eye, I'm, I'm beginning to cock it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm the opposite of that because I can never remember if I've advanced a camera before, and if if a large period of time goes by between one shot and the other, I pick it up and I I'm paranoid like like shit. Did I remember to advance this? And I end up just doing it again, and I waste film. And don't get me wrong, wasting film is better than double exposing. But I just I get in the habit. I don't advance until I'm ready to take the next shot. Yeah, I don't. I don't advance either. I'm with the guys. I I, I advance right after I take the shot if I've got film in the camera. The only time I don't advance after I've, I've taken a shot is if I'm about to store the camera, in which case I don't want to cock the shutter. I want to be, and then that's, that's something for anybody that collects cameras is if you if you're actually um, storing a camera you're not going to use for a while, don't leave the shutter cocked. Uh, it just it doesn't do the springs any any good. Unless unless it's a early 35, then you have to cock it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There is always exceptions. There's always yeah. exceptions. And, and just in case anybody doesn't know, you, you cannot collapse the lens to store it, the Rolly 35, unless you advance the shutter because it's just so, so finicky. Oh, is that why? Okay. Yeah. I explained it in my review for the Rolly 35, but Heinz Vask, uh, he was the guy who did the Adixa for Virgen. Uh, he designed that camera and he built the um, the shutter mechanism from scratch. And the... Um, the cocking mechanism and the blades are two separate pieces and they, they kind of like slide inside of one another. So you have to cock it to get the blades to open and move out of the way before you can collapse it. So it's like it's actually going through the aperture when you're collapsing the lens. Whereas if the aperture's closed, or not, I shouldn't say aperture, I'm sorry, the shutter blades. If the shutter blades are closed, I don't remember. Whatever. Just read what I wrote in the review. I'm going to sound like an idiot here. But it has, it has something to do with the design of the shutter. It has to be open before you can close it, and it kind of slides inside of itself. That's why they did that. But, you know, you mentioned uh, we talked. You, you mentioned about using CoolScan. Um, we talked about this in the private chat recently about different software for scanning for those of us who use flatbed scanners. And, and I really like Silverfast. I think for irregularly spaced images, Silverfast does a pretty good job. It, but it's not perfect. It, when it doesn't correctly detect the frame, it, for me, it's just incredibly simple to to get it to scan, you know, when I'm doing a strip of something, the right image, even if it's like at a slight angle or something. So I don't know if any of you guys have tried Silverfast, but I, I think that's a pretty decent program. Have any of you used that with the V550? Because I cannot get a good image out of it with that. Yeah, that's the exact scanner I have. I use the V550 and I use Silverfast 8. Huh. Now, I use the Epson program uh, for many years. I still think the Epson program does a pretty good job with black and white, and it certainly does fine with medium format. But I get, I've even shown you, Mark, before, I think some AB samples 
that I've gotten between the Epson scan versus uh, Silverfast. And I just, I think I get better colors and I even get better resolution, which is weird because you wouldn't think a scanner would be able to resolve differently depending on its software, but it seems like I do. Okay, I'm going to have to get another shot again. I, mean, I primarily do black and white and I use the, I guess it's the Epson scan too is the one that's out there now, which does a pretty decent job also of picking out ones that are unevenly spaced but yeah yeah i've always just gotten like a gray just a complete gray scan every time no. i try to use silverfast no i've had pretty good luck huh. I mean, don't get me wrong the ui is a lot more complicated than epson's is so like if you're if you just like want to like scan documents or just like quick slides and that's it stick with the epson software because there is a bit of a learning curve and theo i think that's the same for cool scan too when you first get it it does, isn't there a bit of a learning it, curve? It does, but I use uh, I, I use ViewScan on top of ViewScan. Um, I'm sorry. Scan. Yeah, and uh, it's yeah, it's a bit of a I don't know 1980s interface, but it it does seem to do a fairly good job. But yeah, I, I'll I'll add to that by saying that I tend to apart from slides, I tend to uh, scan fairly flat, and even with um, color negatives, I'll scan as an image and then reverse it with Negalab Pro. Um, but I do use I do use it with slides, and it does a, a really good job. And I think Paul, you do the same, don't you? you you're actually using ViewScan on um, on your slide scanning. I use ViewScan, and I just started using Silverfast for black and white. But uh, for ViewScan, I use ViewScan for color because I'm using a V850 and scanning a transparency, and it does the second pass to uh, take dust and scratches off. And it works pretty good. That works great. Yeah, it works yeah. great. It's, I mean, I've got some really old transparencies, medium format and four by five that were improperly stored and they've got just crap all over. And uh, the second pass just eliminates all of it without affecting the resolution. Um, Paul, you've actually just received a lens which makes the rest of us feel inadequate just recently, haven't you? A Nikkor lens, a very big Nikkor lens. Oh yeah, I got the 200 to 600 F9.5. I, I wound up buying... I wanted two cameras this guy had, FTNs with F36 motors. And uh, he had some lenses that went with them and he didn't want to sell them just part one part at a time. So I wound up buying the uh, 200 to 600 9.5. And there was also a 55.12, which uh, now is on its way to Hong. Uh, and also a, uh, he had listed it as a 35 millimeter 2.8. But when I got it, it was actually a 35 millimeter 2.8 perspective control. Oh, that's cool. So uh, it was an interesting batch of stuff. But uh, my, my big thing today is I just got a, I'm closing out an estate for an old friend of mine. And his son sends me, sends me these cameras. And his son is a videographer in LA, but he doesn't know anything about still photography. So he says, I'm, I'm just going to send these to you. And, and he sends me some pictures, but I have no idea what it's going to be. Well, I open one case. And it's uh, an Intrepid 8x10 uh, with two, uh, with a Fuji and a Nikon 240 and 300 millimeter lens. But the, the cool thing was, I had no idea this was coming. A GA645 or a G645, uh, GS645 Pro, uh, which is a folding 645 camera uh, with a built in light meter, rangefinder coupled. My wife actually has one of these. She's had it for, uh, I think she got it in 1985. So she's had it for like 30, over 30 years. And this is just a cool camera. It's, it's of course, it's a, a vertical format. So when you look through it, but when I got this camera, it had this carbuncle on top of it that I couldn't figure out what it was. It turns out it's a Kex or it's a Re Reveni light meter. 
Uh, and I don't know why he did it because cool. the light meter in the camera is fine. <laughs> he didn't have any batteries in it. So I put batteries in it and it uh, fired right up and it's accurate. So these little Revenies, uh, I, I've been using the Voigtlander little meter. And this one is actually maybe a little easier for me to use because the display is on the back. Yeah. That's uh, where it's much more visible if you're just looking at it. We were talking earlier, I have the Dumo meter S and that has the display on top too. And there's a pro and a con. I think by having it on top allows the meter to be a little bit sleeker and not stick up quite as high. But then, of course, you have to lower the camera from your eye, kind of look at the top play to get your reading, make your changes and whatever. But that's, you know, that's, that's how meters just worked back then. It's it's no better or worse than using a handheld or your smartphone for your meter, too. But I think it's interesting. You, you got that camera from an estate with that meter on it, which suggests that the, it was used recently. This isn't well, a camera that sat around for 30 years. No, no. The, the camera actually has a role, part of a role of HP5 in it okay. uh, that, that he shot. It was, it was a really good friend. And he moved from Ohio to California and then became ill and passed away last summer. Uh, but uh, he, he was a, a professional photographer that primarily shot events for Fortune 500 companies. He would fly to, to Portugal or Hawaii or somewhere and shoot meetings. So they were gripping grins and, you know, it was just a, it was just his business, but he, he loved equipment. And when I got, I got into this box of stuff and I found four of those revenue meters, yeah. three of them, three of them new in boxes had never been, had the batteries in. I, I think I found today 10 or 10 or 12 soft release, you know, for cameras. And, and I, I have no idea why he bought all these things, but anyway, um, I'm sorting through them. So, John, you work at Gene's Camera in South Bend. You, you uh, guys have purchased some estates too, right? Yep. And actually, I'm holding a camera right now that I bought an estate last summer myself, personally. And I was just going to show this one off. It's a... Anybody identify that? Is that a Gallus? That's a Gallus. Yeah. And that's the Gallus lens cap. And I just... I, you know, you asked about uh, if I had a king regular and i was running around looking for one and i went through some of these boxes i brought 63 boxes of cameras home from this estate oh. um and my van was packed and uh i just i just ran across this one in a box and i don't really know that much about it but i just ebay checked it and there's one listed for like 600 bucks which is like oh that would be nice um so what is the gallus what's that it's a it's a french camera a gallus durlux it's a 127 it's interesting. It's got four windows on the back and inside there's a little slider so you can switch between. It's a copy of the Foth Derby, but it's got a kind completely of. metal body. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Um, One set of windows is green and one set is red. Right. So would that be like ones for, for ortho, ortho, for ortho and... film or color film? Yeah. yeah, the shutter the shutter on it mostly works, kind of works. It's focal plane still, right? Or is it leaf? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's focal plane. It's uh, yeah. It's just like the Foth Derby. The I have a Foth and it's uh it's a mess. It's like Swiss, it's like cheesecloth, this the shutter is. But it's really a nice camera. I wish it worked. For those of you listening, you can't see me shaking my head in disgust at John. Uh notice he said he bought sixty-three boxes of cameras and he lives an hour away from me. And yet I didn't get a phone call say, Hey Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you the guy that I bought them from, a lot of them are are quite dirty. Um but they seem to they seem to be like like the camera was stored like this and all the dirt yeah. is just in this direction. So some of the stuff I've had some a couple of Yashica twin lenses that I looked at them first. and I'm like, oh, my God, this is a disaster. And then, you know, 20 Q-tips and a quart of alcohol later. And it's like, oh, this looks pretty good. 
Oh. I like to use old but, toothbrushes. I found that that works yeah, pretty good too. Tooth, toothbrushes are great. You got to get the the grit off the lenses first, right? But yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, the guy that collected, he was big into like Argus. I actually have some Argus, I, like C4 lenses for you. I've got like three sitting on my dining room table that I was set aside for you to play with on a C4. Okay. All right. Sweet. But uh, yeah, lots of lots of C3s, C4s, Argus folders. Just a bunch of weird stuff, but it's, it's, I've gone through all the boxes once and kind of separated them out. A bunch of Mercury cameras, a bunch of exactas, like four or five boxes of lenses, all sorts of stuff. And the guy was one that would, uh, he would take things apart. So I have like, I have a couple of Corel reflexes with weird lenses mounted on them. Yeah, that's a camera that never works. Is that Kella? Is that a great wall? That's a great wall with Ooh. without the label and the covers on it. Yeah. But the great wall, it works and it's got, I don't know if you've got one, but it's got the mask inside. Oh yeah, you don't see that too yeah. often. Yeah. So the great the great wall, we've talked about that recently. That's the camera that it's a six by six medium format SLR, but it uses the M thirty nine lens mount. Is it oh yeah, yeah. It's got an interchangeable lens, but nothing fits yeah. it. It's M thirty nine. So you can put right. a like a thread mount on it, but you can only focus about an inch away. Right, right. Yeah. One thing that I wish I had been able to do, I had to return that camera because mine was a loner, but I really wish I had the opportunity to mount one of the Zenit SLR, the M39 Zenit lenses, uh, mm-hmm. because that, that probably still wouldn't focus to infinity either, but I'd be willing to bet that since that was an SLR lens, maybe I might have been able to focus like a foot away instead of an inch away, so... I'll have to I'll have to see. I, I might have one of those. I'll have to see if I can find something that'll mount on it. The shutter on that's a guillotine. It is a weird shutter. It's yeah, it's like is in the uh Exa one. Exa. Yep, it's just yeah. like the Exa, where the reflex mirror is part of the shutter, and then there's just a second baffle that, that follows behind right. it. Um I shot this with the the mask in place, not realizing it was there, and just thought it was a six by six. And uh, I've heard that it vignettes really bad when you shoot six by six. And that's why they gave you the option of the six, four, five and the, and the baffle. It's a mess. I mean, it's, it's the covers all peeled off and it looks all gross, but it's kind of a nice camera. I've, I've shot with it. It's I'm happy with it. Pretty cool. It was, it was one that was just crammed in a box in the, in the estate. It's one of the few that few from the estate that's going to be a keeper as opposed to a, sell this to the lowest bidder kind of a person. When I wrote my review, I, I, I promoted it as, hey, this is a great inexpensive option in the medium format 6x6 mm-hmm. SLRs. And several people pointed out to me, Mike, have you actually looked at the prices for those? And apparently they've gone up quite a bit. What do they go for? Uh, people were saying you can't find them for under 200 bucks anymore. So wow. while while I don't know that that's necessarily like, you know, Hasselblad territory, but considering mm-hmm. the the original appeal of a cheap Chinese made SLR that maybe you could pick up for 60, 70 bucks, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Because I guess at one point, you know, 20 years ago, people were giving them away. Like you couldn't sell mm-hmm. them. I can see that. You had mentioned um, dirty cameras uh, and then exactas. And I don't know what it is about exactas, but I just, they keep showing up. But Paul sold me a, a, Ze- um, a Zeiss Biotar and exact amount recently. And then after that, I saw an Exacta at a local estate with a Biotar on it and the meter. And I'm like, okay, what's better than one Biotar than two Biotars? But I, I'd never seen an Exacta with the, the Ehegi exposure meter prism on top of it. The camera was in horrible shape, but I thought, what the hell? So I bought it. The thing is dirty as heck. I used my toothbrush, just like I told you. 
I cleaned it up, and the damn thing works perfectly. This might actually be the best functioning exacta, I've a uh, 35mm exacta, I should say, that I've ever had. All the shutter speeds work, the slow speed governor works, the self-timer works. Uh, I did the LED flashlight pinhole leak, you know, on both curtains. There's no holes at all. The meter doesn't work. But other than that, I'm quite amazed at how well this thing cleaned up. And it's like, damn it, now I have another exacto to find a place for. But, you know, first world problems, right? Yeah, I haven't I haven't had a chance to check the the exactas that I got, but uh, I've had a few and generally speaking they don't work. Yeah. The ones that I've had. I had an exa that works just fine, but the exactas Yeah. Yeah, the, they they tend to have curtain issues. So, uh, you know, we've talked about gear a ton. Um we did lose Anthony though. He had a rough week at the store, so he had to sign off, but one topic that I wanted to kind of throw out there that it actually came up in the Facebook group for the Camerosity page. It's, it seems people have strong opinions on this. Uh, but for those of us who develop at home, what are your thoughts on your, your preference for tanks and reels? You know, there's some people that are stainless or go home. And then there's other people that exclusively use Patterson or, you know, other plastic style tanks. So I'm a Patterson person myself. I have used the, the steel reels. Um, the my only 16 millimeter reel is steel and and i i find that it's not that hard to load but i've just i don't know what it is i must not have the technique down but i absolutely cannot get 35 millimeter or 120 to load properly on the stainless reel so i've been doing patterson for as long as i've been home developing but i, I know that there's some people out there that just they, they think that those are the devil so i saw i saw james you nodded your head when i said patterson well that's what i use that I started out with a stainless. I just don't have the patience for it. You know, when you're working in darkness, because that's the one step you got to do in complete darkness. It's like that's the one time where you can't afford to fumble around. And I mean, I I know that there's people that have used stainless for decades. Paul, I think you're a stainless guy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. It took me three years to learn how to load them. Yeah. Whereas a Patterson, you could do the first time you try it. So, you know, you know my problem with my problem with Patterson, it takes 10 ounces of chemistry for a roll and a stainless steel takes eight. So. Okay. If I want to mix 16 ounces of chemistry to do two rolls of film, that's easy. If I need to mix 20 ounces of chemistry, then I got to think about it. So it just, you know, and I do use the Patterson for four by five, but uh, for 120 or 35, I just, I'm just sold on the stainless steel. But it yeah. does take time to learn to use it. I, I just, uh, you know, you, you've got to practice with it. And, and I, I kept giving up and I would have, I actually had friends that would load the reels for me the stainless you're talking right yeah, stainless until yeah. i was i just got shamed into learning how to do it and now i can do it easily i mean it's no problem at all for me even 35 or 120 or 220 yeah when i started i had a lot of uh old expired film and it was stuff was like a clock spring and to get it on that stainless was just, was just that's a problem impossible. when you when you have dry film uh it is a problem john what what do you you're stainless aren't you yeah i am i use well I use predominantly stainless. I started out on on plastic reels on uh, like the, the old GAF ones, not even the Patterson ones. But what I have found as well, which might be all of you that have problems with it, the quality of the reel makes a huge difference. I had some 35 millimeter reels that they just would not load right. And the spacing on the, you know, the webs of the of the thing was not quite right. And it just made it really tough to get the load film to load. Yeah. And I switched to different ones and they work great. And with 120, not so much with 35 millimeter, but the way that the film attaches 
what kind of a little clip thingy it has at the beginning, that makes a huge difference. Cause I've got two different kinds for 120 and one of them works okay. And one of them works really nice. So of course I use the nice ones unless I'm doing a whole bunch all at once. But so the, the reel that you're using can make a big difference in, in your winding experience. Well, Nikor, Nikor and Kenderman both are 18.8 stainless. Yep, those which are good. Is what you want. You want the highest yep. grade stainless you can get. Yep. If you get into a reel like Omega or Coastar or some of the, you know, off-brand Taiwanese stainless steel reels, if you drop them one time, just throw them away because mm-hmm. they never load right. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you drop one, it's shot. And I could see the plastic ones, you know, over time, you know, they could they could get dirty, scratched, you know. So, I mean, it's plausible that over time the Patterson ones will wear out. Whereas, you know, assuming you have a high quality stainless reel, that could possibly last you a lifetime. So well, they, well, I've got stainless steel reels that are 50 years old. Right. That's Patterson, what I'm saying. Even with the Patterson's, so I've had people who had trouble loading them. And what I finally learned how to do was teach them to cut the leader off straight across. If it isn't cut off straight across, and also make sure the sprocket is not cut so there's a so that the sprocket yeah, is out. If the sprocket's out, it'll get caught on that ball bearing. I found when I was doing plastic that I had to, the, the leader, I would cut the corners at an angle, like at a 45, to lead in. And that, that helped a lot on plastic ones. The, other, the only pl- problem I really have had with plastic is that they got to be bone dry in order to load them and stainless. You can you can towel off a stainless one and load it back up again. It's- yeah. Well, I did use I did use plastic with a Jobo because I was using a Jobo to mm-hmm. do six. And uh, the Jobo reels to me were a little bit better than the uh, the Patterson reels. They were just a little bit uh, seemed to be heavier duty Delrin or some nylon that was uh just maybe a little bit higher grade. So one advantage uh, of Patterson's that I know you can't do with the stainless, segueing into Mark here. Uh, Mark, you've been working on a project, right? Where you're modifying or, or adding a, a new uh, shaft or something on the Patterson. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, yeah. We have a, a mutual friend of ours, Adam Paul, had requested some uh, wider format developing capabilities. So I've been designing and 3D printing central cores that you can snap the ends of the Pattersons into to get whatever desired width he needs. And I just shipped off about five or six different sizes to him today. And that's certainly something you cannot do, do easily on those steel, stainless steel ones without some serious soldering or welding. Uh, so it's been nice being able just to design something you can snap those into and the ratcheting mechanism still works even at that, even with that. If you got a 122 size, I can, I can make you one. I can, you can get, if you give me the right d- d- dimensions, I can print one and send it. Yeah. I thought that was one of the ones Adam had you do. I think so. I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember what he had. What the list I'm pretty was. sure he did. So you did 116, you did 122, and I thought you did 130. Yeah, let me take a look here. I think that's right, yeah. So what, for someone who can't, I haven't seen one, but I've seen the pictures Mark is talking about. You take your Patterson reels, you separate them, and then this 3D printed shaft goes in between the two, and you just attach both halves of the Patterson reel on each end of it. And hmm. the, 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 the length of it is different, depending on which size you need. So mm-hmm. when you use the 116 size or 122, it just keeps those reels further apart at the correct distance so that wow. you could load the the wider format films on there. So you're not really printing the whole spool because yeah. I would I would imagine that getting all those webs and those tiny pieces uh, would be kind of difficult to get them without little burrs or little you know. Yeah, I, 
I've got a resin printer on the way that I can probably do actually print full reels, but this is just like a friction fit core that you slap these onto and line them up so they can, so you can ratchet them. And oh. basically whatever, whatever width you need, you take that and subtract five millimeters off for the, the little flange area on inside the spiral on the Patterson, Patterson reels. So yeah, that's an option, you know, cause I, once you go wider than 120, it, it's harder to, to do at home developing on wider film rolls. I picked up uh, from one of the one of the film groups or somewhere fifteen or twenty rolls of uh, one twenty two Veracrum pan from seventy six or something like that, and uh, it's like, oh, I'm going to shoot this in my Graflex three A, and then it's like, but how are you going to process that? So if you've got Mark, if you've got a if you've got a spool, I would love to get a copy of the STL file. I can print my own. Yeah, it is. It's just a simple cylindrical core that has, you know, one side is um, a narrower diameter than the other, and it's basically just friction fit on each end. So, yeah, okay. I'll be happy to send that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Adam's testing them right now, though, right? I uh, just mailed them off today, so he'll get them tomorrow and start testing. Yeah. So he'll he'll be a good kind of proof of concept, John, and then once he's got it, because yeah. I imagine the printing, it's a pretty simple thing. It's just getting the exact dimensions right is where it's critical. And yeah, depending on how critical the, the, the friction fit is, Mark's printer and filament might print different than my printer and filament. Right. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah. What filament are you using, if I may ask? Uh, this these I just printed out on sort of a PLA, a PLA plus, um, so okay. it's a little bit more impact resistant. I my I, my printer now does I can do nylon, so I'm planning on making some mm -hmm. nylon ones uh, in the future. And I wanted to get proof of concept with Adam first to make sure that they're functional before going forward. The cool thing is, at least you can, you can always scale the SDL by a certain percentage in case you, your in case your flanges are slightly mm -hmm. larger or narrower. Um, but yeah, I, I sent Adam the actual flanges that I measured off of with these just to make sure that he could test it out and it would work. Yeah, I love. I mean, I just it's so exciting the possibilities that three D printing is giving this hobby between. Projects like that, uh, the little adapters you can put on the end of the rolls to use like a 120 film in a 116 camera, uh, people 3D printing lens adapters for some of the more obscure lenses. Uh, it, I, I can't remember which board it was on, but it was one of the Facebook camera collecting groups. Somebody 3D printed Canon FD mount to Kodak vest pocket, the 127 folder, so that he was he was able to take the entire lens and shutter off of a folding Kodak vest pocket and just mount it directly to a Canon, you know, some kind of SLR. And he 3D printed the whole thing. So, you know, we had talked in previous episodes, Mark, where, you know, maybe with, with uh, CNC machining, you know, we can start 3D printing even some replacement parts, possibly, you know, maybe bringing back to life certain cameras with parts that haven't been available in forever. You know, it just it, it seems like it's changing constantly. And when I heard Mark and Adam talking about this, I'm like, God, that's such a simple solution. Just create a spacer to keep the two halves of the Patterson reels further apart and boom, you got it. So uh, definitely keep us posted on that. Um, I had hoped Adam could be on here to talk more about it, but uh, something came up. So we'll, we'll definitely share more as we learn your, the results of that. And there is a new process out there now available. There's a certain type of filament that has um, stainless steel in it, and you can print it on a regular printer and send it off, and they'll post-process it to give you back the full metal parts. So that's an option for... Okay. For doing like gears and things like that. Yeah. We lost Anthony. We lost Miles. Uh, we lost 
David. Uh, so people are dropping like flies before anybody else goes. Is there any is anybody any questions or anything else new that they want to share that you've done recently? I'd just like to put out a thank you to Paul. Bought um, some sheep backs, um, sheep holders for the uh, Makina, uh, which he sent through. Um, in the previous episode, you would have heard how we organized that through the, the $1 purchase and got them through. And he added a uh, Flash Bantam 8 to 8 camera um, Kodak in there as, as a gift. So thank you very much, Paul. That's a beautiful little camera. Exported them to Australia. <laughs> Can you still get things in Australia? Is, like right now, are there any? Any additional problems, or is it uninterrupted? No, it's it's pretty uninterrupted unless you're in one of the areas which is already flooded um, across okay. Queensland or New South Wales. So, uh, apart from that, it's pretty much okay. I had one more piece of gas I completely forgot about that um, I'm really excited to try and shoot. I think this could possibly be one of the prettiest TLRs I've ever um, seen, but this is called the Fujika Flex. This is a 6x6 TLR. I love the kind of, I don't know if that's Art Deco, but it's got this really 50s, um, the Rocketeer, it reminds me of the logo on top. Uh, it's got a very, like a, a stainless chrome frame, I guess, around the taking and viewing lenses. The The taking lens is a 8.5 centimeter F2.8 Fujinar lens, so it would be equivalent to like a Roloflex 2.8. It's got the gear here on the side for something I honestly haven't played with this camera yet, but uh, Psychosha Rapid Shutter. Really, really pretty. Very, very heavy. This camera, I mean, I don't have my scale handy, but it feels a good deal heavier than um, a typical Roliflex of the same era does too. So this is a really, really pretty, it's even got kind of a, a focused scale on the side, which is kind of neat. You know, as you focus the lens, the, the depth of field changes on it, so... That's another one that I hope to get reviewed this year. Uh, I got a bunch of stuff coming. Uh, tomorrow's review is uh, a KW Reflex box. Um, I'm putting the final touches on John's APS cameras he sent me a while back. <laughs> I have a non-Nikonos underwater camera review coming that I'm pretty excited about. I got some really fantastic shots of, you know, just a bunch of stuff. You know, when I do reviews, I try to not do the same kind of camera two weeks in a row. I try to have a mixture of old, new. I like to try to have some that are really obscure, some that are, you know, fairly common. Because, you know, sometimes as much as people like reading about the really hard to find cameras, if you can't find them, then people are kind of less interested if it's nothing that they ever have a chance of getting themselves. So I would think that the Noblex would fall into the not very easy to find category. But I like to I like to pick things that on occasion, people could feasibly go out and get themselves. So I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. These MR9 battery adapters, are they any good? The ones that uh, convert uh, for cameras that have the PX625, and they convert yeah. the voltage of a 1.5 to 1.35, I guess. I bought yeah, a but... bunch of them from a guy in, in England who is, he stopped doing them. But uh, he was he was cutting them out of brass. He basically made a little brass donut that you stuck a a 675 hearing aid battery, mm -hmm. which was the correct voltage uh, for one point, what was it, 1.5 or 1.35, whatever it was, it was the correct voltage. They work great. And hearing aid batteries are dirt cheap. The problem is they don't last for, for a long time. So you do need to replace them. If it's on all the time, it's going to die probably in two to four weeks. I, I bought one from the same guy in England, but they were the ones that actually had the chip in which converts the voltage. So you put in the 1.55 voltage batteries in there 
and they work fantastically. Oh, they do? Yes, they do. They do because they, they actually convert the voltage to 1.35. You get the benefit of using the um, the SR44 batteries oh, or, S- yeah. SR, or SR93s. I, I can't remember the exact ones, but the 1.55 button batteries and it just converts them over. So you get the benefit of, of um, both worlds wow. there. In the U.S., there was a company called CRIS that uh, made the same. Uh, they made that adapter with a resistor in it that uh, converted it from 1.5 to 1.35. But I haven't seen those in quite some time. Do you remember them, John? Did you sell them at the store? I think we've had them. I we have we have wine cells, which are yeah the the uh, <laughs> single use really cell. expensive seventeen dollar um, battery that lasts six months. Yeah, Thank yeah. You. I don't, we don't have any of the, the CRIS ones. I don't. I haven't used them. I have kind of just avoided the mercury cell cameras. James, are do you know where? Like, have you found a place that sells these? Well, I've seen one eBay, but I've seen some that are expensive. I've seen some that are cheap, so I don't know okay. if if some of them are good or some of them are bad. There's a guy in e- England, and I don't know if it's the same guy Paul's referring to. The little battery company, I think it's called something like that. And he um, he actually sells them. It takes a while for them to be posted out, but um, they he sells them. They're, they're not cheap, considering you're buying one adapter for multiple cameras. Right. If, if that's, right. The, that's the thing, it actually works out quite economical. Has anybody done the uh, the diode trick where you put a diode in your camera? No, I haven't. No. You just got to have the right voltage, though. Yeah. There's certain cameras that you can modify the electronics, but I, I, I think that's what you're referring to is actually modifying the camera with a different diode. I mean, I, I would imagine you need to know which specific models can do that and have the uh, skill to be able to do that level of soldering, which I definitely lack. I imagine some cameras are harder than others, I guess. Yeah. Sure. For me, pretty much any of the old Mercury cell cameras, almost always they're needed for the meter. You know, I mean, I know there are some where the camera won't work without it, but I almost, I know we were just talking about meters. I almost never use a camera's in camera meter unless I know it's like a newer one. Because, you know, most of these early CDS meters, even if they do respond to light, they're probably off anyway. I would definitely be interested in getting one of those adapters just to try one out. So you've kind of piqued my interest in wanting to have battery gas. But for for the most part, though, like we were, you know, just we keep talking about knicker mats, but the the knicker mat FT2 and FT3s were redesigned for the silver oxide battery. So they have the correct voltage. I'd mentioned earlier Yashica SLRs. The I think it was the TL Super was the first 35 millimeter SLR designed for a silver oxide battery. So if you look around, you know, like Canonets typically held on to the Mercury's, Minolta rangefinders held on to the Mercury batteries a lot longer than they probably should have. There are some where it definitely would, would be a good idea to have, but I don't know about modifying the cameras though. Yeah, I just looked up while we were talking, I just looked up the Chris Cam battery adapter is $40 uh, wow. one. And uh, and it does convert it uh, from uh, the PX13 625. So what? It's a little like a sleeve. You stick the battery in. No, it's actually yeah. It's like a little donut, but it's got a, a uh, it has microcircuitry inside that changes the uh, the uh, specifications, and it uses a 386 rather than a, oh, a yeah. 76. That's the Spotmatic battery. Those are hard to find. Yeah, it's so, uh, and I think at 386, that's the same battery that the Nimslo takes. So yeah, they're not easy to get. Mark Faulkner just sent us a link to a eBay Canto 
camera MR9 Mercury adapter. It's fifty bucks. Yeah, that's the SR43 one. Okay, all right, it's the same one then. Which is that? That's that's the one I like because it is. You know, the SR43s last forever. They're, they're silver oxide, so um, they continue to keep working. It's good to know. Well, uh, James, why don't you go buy one and uh, <laughs> come back and give us a report? <laughs> come back, and give us a report. Yeah. All right. I should start keeping track of all the homework we're assigning to people because I, I believe we've we've had some people buy cameras from Paul that were going to come back and tell us about them. And uh, Theo was going to do that uh, that development box we talked about yeah. the last. You can episode. keep waiting. You can keep waiting on you that. Keep one for waiting. The <laughs> I, I want to know. I want to see Nafis uh, see how you uh, whether you get your camera back together after the you. Lux. Oh, I haven't taken. I haven't taken it apart. So you're gonna you're gonna create a kit. <laughs> what, what we all yeah. It's a, you're going to retro. You're going retro. You're going to start with a camera and, and make it into a kit. Now, have yeah. you just tried exercising it a lot? I mean, if you just got it and it's been sitting for many, many years, it's plausible that you just keep firing it. Maybe it'll loosen up. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know, you only see the banding when you're shooting, like you know, like a white wall or something. Yeah. So it's actually not that bad. So, it's not that bad. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I just need to shoot a little bit more. It's just been so crappy weather up here. I just haven't had just time to shoot a whole bunch of trees and maybe the uh, the diversity <laughs> the banding of textures. Will just camouflage. We'll, yeah, it will be camouflage. There you go. All right. See, yeah. we're, we're off. Yeah. Try to use it for work. So it's going to be kind of crazy. Not okay. like you know, if it All starts right. banding or something. What, what's going on in your background there, Nafis? Is that yeah. a studio? Yeah, I see you. Yeah, I want to know what that wood box is. is. Well, that's actually a Polaroid camera, and that's a light. Um, okay, that Polaroid that's camera, a pretty just big the, Polaroid. Yeah, for the yeah, it's people like, listening, uh, that's a the big wooden box. Twenty by twenty-four. Wow! Oh, you got one of those. So it's like one of the big ones. There's only a few of those. I thought you had to. Uh, are you, There's six they, of them. Yes. And you got one sitting there casually in the background, mate. <laughs> yeah, I had two actually. <laughs> So I, I work for the studio that runs, like we run the campus. So I, I oh. so when we had a we had a studio in New York that kind of closed down after COVID. So we moved one of the cameras up here. So I have it in my studio. So we work out of my studio now. Who was the woman who did the those those? She was famous for using that camera. Elsa Dorfman. Yeah, Elsa Dorfman. I actually worked for yes. her, and I had his cam. I actually had her camera here. Wow. But that's just down the road in Hartford right now. That's um, cool. Very cool. Um, so can I, I just want to point out that that would have been a really <laughs> good way to introduce yourself. No, it would have been nice if you had brought this up earlier. <laughs> that's super cool. That just means you have to come back, mate. You have to come back and talk to us about this. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So I'm on 20x24studio.com. That's the website yeah. I've been to before. And it, it's got Elsa's. A camera. I mean, I see one here. It may even be the one. Hell, you might even be on this website somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm. I actually haven't been to that website in a while, so I don't know what yeah, what they wow. have because we haven't really done much during the COVID because the New York studio is closed. Yeah. Um. So and the studio has been kind of you know we still have some of the film left, so we do shoot, but just COVID has just been crazy. Wow, that's super cool. I I definitely have a lot of questions, but. We have definitely run out of time <laughs> yeah. for episode 21. I just want to thank you guys. You know, as always, it's always fun to have people come on. You know, we never know what we're going to talk about. 
uh, on occasion, we'll have a few, you know, ideas in the back of our pocket, and it's always fun to share gas uh, stories with each other. So, does anybody have anything else they wanted to bring up? Nope. Nope. Thanks for stopping nope. in. Be sure to join us again two weeks from now on Monday, March 21st at our usual time. We're going to be welcoming Dan Tamarkin of Tamarkin Cameras in Chicago, Illinois. Dan and his store specialize in Leica, all things Leica rangefinders, um, lenses. If you have any questions regarding Leica for Dan, be sure to join us. Everybody, thank you. You guys have a great rest of your week. Uh, Theo, stay dry. Anthony's hopefully sleeping right now. Uh, and uh, you guys have a great rest of your week. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. For those of you guys who've uh, never been on the live show and have only listened to us, to us, uh, versions, you might be surprised at how chaotic this is, but trust me, this is how all the episodes are. Let's uh, do a are, lot of editing, uh, editing, uh, editing. Uh, editing. Uh,